Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. You know, it's one of my favorite hobbies is uncovering these expatriate Australians. Uh, <laughs> We're everywhere. Who, 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 especially ones that have left a long time ago and have managed to insinuate themselves into the fabric of another society. Uh, and I've got to say, you've done particularly well uh, because I saw that you actually been named uh, the top Canadian guru. Yeah, well, I was, I was the first ever Canadian coach of the year. And I was like, <laughs> Pretty good for an Australian. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. And that happened in the same year that uh, a Canadian uh, wearing the Australian flag won a gold medal in the Winter Olympics. And I was like, it's kind of a fair trade. Australia gets an Olympic medal and Canada gets me. There, there, there's certainly a kind of a symmetry between the two countries. But <laughs> I suspect a darker plot because, you know, the more I dig, the more I realize that, you know, these Rhodes Scholars of which you are uh, a part always turn up in unexpected places. Right. That Bob Hawke, for example. Right, Bob Hawke. <laughs> and uh, that, I mean, that's, there is something about, I mean, it's an Australian thing. It's sort right? of a larrikin intellectualism, yeah. right? But there's a, there's a degree that once you, I mean, you're, you're, you're an expatriate in a sense yourself, uh-huh. right? So uh, there's that way where you get out of Australia and it's like a long boomerang back, right? Maybe we'll come back, maybe we won't, but it's once you're out, you're like, okay, it's a different soil. I get to blossom in a different way here and kind of experimenting and seeing how that works. <laughs> I, can't, I can't drink beer like Bob Hawke. Apparently no, one, drink beer. no one can drink beer like Bob Hawke. <laughs> uh, and if you're wondering who I'm speaking to, it actually isn't Bob Hawke. It is uh, Michael uh, Bungay-Stanya, uh, who is, of course, uh, not only the Canadian Coach of the Year, he is the best-selling author of some wonderful books, The Coaching Habit, yeah. which I believe from the last tally has sold more than 300,000 copies. Yeah, it's pretty cool, I have to say. Which is amazing considering it is not a coloring book. And, uh, <laughs> or, or a or, recipe book. Or about vampires uh, yeah. uh, or magicians. Uh, he also wrote another fantastic book, uh, which was uh, Do More Great Work. Yeah. And a book about ending malaria. Yeah. You've been busy. I have been busy. Um, Although when you know, when people I know you, you know you you and I have both written books and when people come to me and go well I'm thinking of writing a book, honestly I go do you, are you sure because <laughs> it's a miserable experience right you have this idea and then you write write a first draft and it's typically terrible, and then you write okay but I know first drafts are terrible so then you write a second draft and it's not much better and. It's only by the fourth draft it starts getting good, but by the fourth draft you hate the idea, you hate yourself, you hate the process. True writers realize that writing is pain. Right, it's like, I I don't know who said this, but I love the quote, which is, writing is easy. You just stare at a blank sheet of paper till drops of blood appear on your forehead. (laughs) So it's, it's a mark of something, I'm not sure, masochism, idiocy, blind persistence that you and I both have some books under our belt. All of this in face of growing evidence that no one actually reads them. Yeah. And not just our books, of course, but, but right. books in general. I, I, can't <laughs> I tell thought you were attacking me no, personally no. for a moment. I, I can't tell the number of people who've congratulated me on books I haven't written. <laughs> um, or, or actually don't even exist. Right. Um, well, well, you know, that's an interesting point. It kind of plays to my piece around you know, when people say I want to write a book. I'm, I'm like, are you sure? Because 
there's something really important about getting ideas out into the world. You and I both stand for that. But um, it's but it's a fair question to ask, is a book the right way to do that? Because um, there's so many other avenues that you can find ways to put an idea out there and, and find your own voice there. Mm. The other thing that w- was really one of the reasons for the coaching habit success, I think, is that writing it, I had a, ver- a strong design principle, wh- which was, I'm going to write the shortest book I can, that would be the most useful. So I was deliberately trying to write a short book, because so many books are not read because they're loose, stuffed full of meaningless stuff, recycled stories, paragraphs for the sake of paragraphs. And if you're going to write, so- if you're going to create anything, make it lean and elegant and beautiful. Uh, if nothing else, because it's harder to do it that Right. You know, that, that somebody once said, you know, I, I, I don't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I'd give anything for simplicity on the other side of complexity. And doing the work to get through complexity to simplicity again, that's where wisdom and beauty lie. And that's the hard work. I love that all your quotes have no attribution whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to take credit for all of them. But almost nothing I say is original. Yeah. Here's another unattributed <laughs> quote, which is, originality is just unacknowledged plagiarism. And it's appropriate that I don't know who originally said that. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Steve Jobs. Yeah. Well, that's usually who they attribute everything to these days. Uh, although, given that it's the title of your most recent book, um, coaching would seem like an obvious uh, way in for a conversation. Yeah. One of the things that really fascinated me about the book, which of course I haven't read, um, <laughs> is, is that it's actually not about coaching at all. It's about questions. Yeah, and, and and actually, if, if if I was going to title our discussion today, I mean, I would, I would really love to get to the bottom of, what does it take to ask great questions, and why do they matter? Ah, uh, such a good juicy question, because <laughs> you're right. The book, the book was written to help people not become a coach, but to become more coach-like. Hmm. And actually, one of the things that I kind of rant against is how coaching can become a bit ghettoized because it becomes something that wealthier people and white people and middle class and executives can afford and it's not accessible for everybody else. And in fact, uh, Peter Block, who's one of my kind of thinking heroes in the space, he once said that, look, coaching isn't a profession, it's a way of being with each other. Right. And, and man, I love that. When he said that, I love that. So for me, this book is about how to help everybody be more coach-like. And when it comes down to it, that what that behavior is, is can you stay curious a little bit longer? And can you rush to action and advice giving just a little bit more slowly? Which sounds simple. It is simple. It's just difficult. <laughs> it is difficult. I mean, that alone would save millions of marriages. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. In fact, I, no, I don't have kids, um, so I'm hardly in the position to give advice on how to raise kids. But somebody once said that uh, how you act with your spouse and how you act with your kids, you kind of need to flip the, flip the behaviors around. Because what you do with kids is they come home and they're sullen teenagers and you're like, so what did you do and how was school? And what's important? And they're like, they don't want to talk to you. And... Um, and what you do with your wife is you kind of grunt your way through the logistics of life. And what you actually want to do is ask your wife or your spouse or your partner all those questions about what's on with their life. And with the kids, just hang out with them and be present with them. And that's what they actually want. 
And here's me thinking you were going to say to your wife that she can't watch television until she's done all your work. Well, obviously, <laughs> she can't watch television until and she's And your kids have to stop spending money on shoes. That, I could have gone down, down that path, you're right. <laughs> but, you know, I like this idea of being coach-like because it's often quite hard to debug relationships, especially mm-hmm. in, in a corporate context. Yeah. And and it's weird because when, you, when you're not coach-like and you act like coaches... You, I always think of the sort of the Steve Ballmer Microsoft right. versus the uh, Satya Nadella Microsoft. Right, right. In many ways, um, you know, Steve Ballmer was the archetypical football coach, right. you know, yelling at people to exactly. perform, whereas Satya was, would ask interesting questions. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And here's the thing. I mean, you asked about why is it hard to do that, and there's kind of two answers to it. And the first answer is, honestly, we've spent a lifetime being rewarded for having the answer. You know, you like go through high school, go through university, go through your early career. It's like, do you know your stuff? Um, And so it's hard to shake off a lifetime of being praised and rewarded and encouraged to have the answer. But I think there's a more subtle reason why we resist being curious, and it's about a shift of power. Because the thing is, if you're giving the answer, if you've got the advice, you're kind of you're the smart person, you're in control, you know where the relationship's going. Um, as, as soon as you stop and you go, rather than tell you something, I'm gonna ask you a question, now you're actually handing control of that conversation to the person who's answering the question. And now actually, rather than a place of certainty, you're in a place of ambiguity. You, know, you ask a question and there's that brief moment where you go, I don't know, was that a good question? <laughs> Did they understand the question? What happens if they come up with some crazy-assed answer that I don't really know how to process or deal with or answer? So actually, asking questions, being curious, is an act of servant leadership in some ways. Assuming it is a true question. I mean, there yeah. are some people who say, and that these people may actually be the people who've said all the other things that you right. mentioned earlier, um, that you should never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. Yeah, I, I would see often what that is is what I would call fake questions because right. people are like okay I've been told I have to ask questions and the question sounds something <laughs> like have you thought of or did you try or what about the or it's just rhetorical it's exactly. not, not even meant to have a response yeah I mean honestly it's advice with a question mark attached okay. when they when they ask a question like that right. so um, the challenge with asking a question that you don't know the answer to is that you don't know the answer to it. It has to be a leap into the unknown. Yeah, and on our brains, you know, our lizard brains are wired to go, you know what, avoid ambiguity, avoid uncertainty, it's dangerous for you. So in some ways you're, you're trying to get your, your prefrontal cortex, your thinking brain, to override that instinct of your amygdala, you know, the lizard brain, um, to go, I'll sit with that ambiguity because I have the confidence that that momentary ambiguity, that momentary giving up power, pays off for me in the longer run. But I guess on the reciprocal side, you know, assuming the person you're speaking to has got his neocortex lit up, the fact that you are willing to trade off your power and show interest um, instantly makes you much more interesting to them Absolutely. And actually makes you a brilliant conversationalist. Absolutely. So that's exactly what's going on. So, you know, uh, in the book we talk about the neuroscience of engagement. Right. right? And this is just me taking other people's thinking and trying to put it into a model. 
and you'll already know that. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't tell everyone what we do for a living. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm no neuroscientist, but I've read some books about neuroscience and I've read some research about it. And, and I know folks listening to the podcast will know most of this already, but you know, the basic is five times a second, your brain is going, is it safe or is it dangerous? Right. Scanning the environment at an unconscious level. And there are four factors that we talk about that, that make the brain feel comfortable. Uh, tribiness, you know, are you with me or are you against me? Mm-hmm. Expectation, do I know what's about to happen or do I not know? Rank, are you more or less important than me? And autonomy, am I making some choices or are you making all the choices for me? And the more you can increase the terror quotient, T-E-R-A, the more likely that person is to be engaged. Now, here's the thing, to increase somebody else's rank, the best thing to do is decrease your own rank. Mm-hmm. To increase somebody else's sense of autonomy, the best thing to do is diminish your own sense of control and autonomy. To create some expectations, sometimes that's about giving stuff away that you are holding to yourself. And often tribiness is also, uh, you lower your own nexus of power and control by bringing them into the fold. So it's one of those things where you're like, if I'm playing the bigger game to engage those around me and actually have them show up as their best selves, I've got to do all this internal work to manage myself even though it just looks like I'm just trying to ask a good question. And, and this is really hardwired into a hopo- homo sapiens, oh, yeah. isn't it? And yeah, this is like you know, the 30,000 year journey for us to be sitting here in the hotel room chatting about this. It's like, oh yeah, it's all there wired in. And I, I think it links very close to a lot of research they've even done in corporations. I think when Google did a big study on this, they found that the biggest determinant of team productivity was psychological safety, safeness. Right. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so tell me about some of these questions then. Um, uh, yeah. what, what are some of these examples of these smart questions that sure. leaders should be asking? So the book only has seven questions in it. and. You know, I wrote five bad versions of this book before I finally got a good version out into the world. And you know, the first version was like, here are my 190 favorite questions that I've come across because I've been in the world of coaching for 15 years and I've noticed that great coaches have great questions and I've collected them. So I've got all these awesome questions and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this thing where I'm gonna, it's like three pages on every question about why it's awesome. And I wrote this. And it was a terrible, terrible book. I mean, it was long, it was boring, it was confusing. So... God, that sounds like my last book. (laughs) (laughs) So knowing there's this, uh, the paradox of choice, which is in some ways striving for elegance or simplicity on the other side of complexity. It's like, okay, what's the least number of questions that could be most useful? So I experimented, you know, down to three, that didn't quite work, up to nine, too many, and we landed at seven. And what I like about the seven is, they kind of cover a full spectrum of most conversations. So they'll do you most of the time. So let me share the the bookend questions as a starting point, the first question and the last question. The bookend question is, it solves the problem of how do we get into an interesting conversation more quickly? Hmm. Because when I wrote the book, I was really going, okay, this is probably mostly for engaged, busy, overwhelmed managers and organizations. Um, and they're like, look, I might want to be a coach or coach-like, but I don't have time for the yakety yakety yak, chit-chat, small talk. It's got, to, it's got to be faster than that. So the kickstart question is, what's on your mind? 
So it's a deceptively powerful question because it actually is open. It says to the person across the table from you, you, you get to choose, right? This is increasing right. their autonomy and their rank and their tribal by asking that. But it's still neutral. It's not what's wrong. Exactly. It's still neutral. But it, it subtly has a degree of focus to it, which is it doesn't say, tell me anything that's going on. It actually says, tell me the thing that you're excited about or you're worried about or you're waking up at four o'clock in the morning about or you're kind of just overwhelmed by right now. It takes you to the interesting place right away. So what we found is that what's on your mind or a more, a more less powerful version of that in my mind is something like, so where should we start? Is um, an invitation to go, let's go somewhere interesting fast. So that's often a good place to start. You know, our big philosophy at Boxy Crayons, my company is, if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. So you've got to get into it fast. But then you've got to finish strongly. And I was really influenced by, do you know the book Stumbling Into Happiness? No. By Dan Gilbert? So Dan Gilbert is a Harvard psychologist. The book is nominally on happiness, but it's actually about how lousy our, the human memory is. I mean, it's just lousy. Um, and one of the things he said there is that our, our memory of an event is really influenced by the first thing that happens and the last thing that happens. Ah, the, yes. the primacy and the recency effect. Right. So I was like, that's useful. Which, is how th which, they, which they use to reinvent colonoscopies. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Because they're like, if you make it better right at the end, yeah. you forget the pain. It builds a tube up your ass. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I wasn't going to go there, but uh, I'm glad I, you took I, I, I live there, don't yeah. I? Yeah, okay. Um, so starting strong matters, finishing strong matters. So here's the insight, here's the problem the final question solves, which is uh, people don't remember anything you tell them. <laughs> like, and people miss the value of the conversation that they might be having with you. And what we want, particularly you and I who have a career dishing off advice at, on stage, is we want people to remember the awesome advice and the awesome insights that we give them. But the truth is, people forget stuff really quickly. I mean, in the world of training, mm. the statistic is something like 40 minutes after leaving the cl a classroom where they've been all day, they've forgotten 90% of what they're exposed to. So you basically need to get the person you're coaching to frame their insight. You've got to get them to un uh, kind of expose their own insight for themselves. So the last question, the learning question as we call it is, what was most useful or most valuable here for you? And now you're doing a few subtle things. First of all, you're, you're not saying, was there anything valuable? You're saying what was most useful or most yeah. valuable. You presuppose pre the, the, the exactly. positive. So you've now reminded them and framed them that talking to you is an awesome experience, useful yeah. and valuable every time. Secondly, you say, what's the thing that was most useful for you? So they now have to articulate the value that they might otherwise miss. Because we've all had those conversations where you're on one side going, nailed that pearls of wisdom coming from my mouth and nuggets of gold coming from my brain it was fantastic and the other person's going I have no idea what that was all about so now you're going find the value for you hmm. and then the the other bonus is when they it's when they talk about what they found most useful and most valuable you then get feedback about what's working with them so you get to refine your approach the next time round so it kind of serves everybody to go, this is a mutually valuable, mutually reinforcing conversation. And, you know, I guess throughout this process, and you've got some other questions as well, you know, which, which I love. Um, 
I think I think your number two is and what else? Yeah. Which I, which I always you know I was always taught that's a great way to elicit the true gossip out of somebody. Right. Because if you're interrogating someone, that's that's the moment where you actually get the interesting stuff. Right. Because the the. The, the less exciting way of saying that, because I'm about to repeat what you've said just in more boring language is, their first answer is almost never their only answer, yes. and it's rarely their best answer. And because we are wired to leap to action, leap to advice giving, and what else, first of all, operates as a self-management tool. You know, as soon as they're giving your answer, part of you is twitching to now, and I'm doing air quotes here, add value to the conversation, but if you can resist that, and lean in and go, that's great, and what else? But also people are pleasers. Yeah. You know, so if they feel that they've got something to contribute, they'll actually dig deep to tell you things they're not meant to tell you. They will. <laughs> now one of, the, one of the principles in our approach to coaching is, uh, we have three, be lazy, be curious, be often. And be curious we're talking about, right? It's like, hmm. we talk about controlling the, the advice monster that we all have, that as soon as somebody starts talking, you know, advice monster comes out of the dark and starts trying to, jump in. Being often for us is to recognize that this idea of being more coach-like, you can do that with almost any interaction because any interaction can benefit from you being more curious a little bit longer. But being lazy feels more provocative and what people, what we're trying to have people do is to stop them leaping in to fix things, solve things, do things for the other people. Mm-hmm. It's allow them the, the journey of figuring this stuff out for themselves so they become more confident, more competent, more self-sufficient, more autonomous, all of that good stuff. Now, I want to get into a little bit about how this situates into the kind of new types of organizations we're moving yeah. into now. But you know, for the sake of completeness, the, the other questions that the listeners can go and dig into later are, what's the real challenge here for you? The focus question. The focus question. Yeah. What do you want? Yeah, we call that the foundation question because it's such a simple question, but it's kind of foundational to kind of going, how do we build mutually respectful relationships? What do you want? What do I want? Really powerful way of being there. Um, Number five, how can I help? Yeah, which we call the lazy question. And it doesn't really sound like a lazy question (laughs) because it sounds like you're asking for more work or more tasks. But in fact, what you're doing is you're slowing down the rush to assume that you know what they need and you start leaping in to fix it. Right. And then the number six is, if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? And we call that the strategy question. Because right. as you know, strategy, when it comes down to it, is making the hard choices. It's about how do I say no to the stuff that I kind of want to say yes to. So you're helping them prioritize, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And you're helping them see the opportunity cost. And you're helping them go, let's move away from this fantasy that you can add anything more to your life because you're already overwhelmed. You've already got too much stuff on. How do you have the discipline and the courage and the focus to say no so that you can say a true yes to the stuff that matters to you? You know, when I, when I step back and think about this, because I know a big part of you know, what you do and think about and work is around bringing more humanity into organizations. Yeah. But there's another interesting dynamic going on which organizations are by necessity becoming more algorithmic yeah. uh, because the world is, is becoming that way. It's becoming more ruled by data and systems and mm-hmm. we're increasingly empowering machines to make decisions for us. Right. So I think if anything, this is starting to cast you know, more significance around the way that human beings interrelate with each other. Right. We've got to become more human-like when we're human so that we can allow machines to become more machine-like 
when that's they're, interesting. they're operating. Yeah, I like that that sense because it's, I mean, you know this path better than me, or at least you've got better mm. guesses as to what the future looks like because that's what you talk about and you think about all the time. Um, what I see are people worried about things changing, not entirely sure knowing what to do with that. And the reaction often enough is to kind of give up or just hope that it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and part of what all of those questions help you with is to stare at reality more closely in the face, particularly if you ask him what else. You know, so you're like, okay, so we're facing a world where organizations are becoming more data-driven, more algorithmic. Um, so for us to build an organization that respects and celebrates, if you like, the people who work here, what's the real challenge here for us? But I think you're, you're understanding the, the power of those questions in a way because there are some things which are going to emerge from these conversations which no computer is going to be able to right. you know, deduce. I mean, you can take the Taylorist approach, right. and you can you can use time and motion studies to right. study exactly how long it should take to stack a shelf. <laughs> right. But you will never get to the bottom of whether people are engaged or not unless you have smart leaders asking these kinds right. of questions. I think that's right, and you know the transition in management. I mean that people p paint a false dichotomy. Oh, it used to be command and control. You know, it's like, I'm just going to tell you what to do because we're all cogs in this machine. Yeah. Um, but now it's a different world. Well, you know, honestly, <laughs> it was never quite as command and controly as we, we're now painting. And it's not as kumbaya as we'd like to and believe. And it's absolutely not as kumbaya. I mean, people talk about, they talk about coaching for performance. Yeah. Which really is just a nice way of kind of telling people what to do. Right, because yeah. it's still about trying to get how, stuff how, done. How do you reconcile? I mean, a number of these new high-tech companies like Amazon, yeah. Netflix, are yeah. pride themselves on being very performance-driven. Yeah. But then you hear these terrifying stories emerging of a culture which seems, you know, like the Hunger Games. Yeah. So, so, so how do you find that balance? Well, uh, I think it ma it depends so much on the different company and the different culture. So I'm kind of weaseling out by going, well, it depends, really, doesn't it? But uh, it comes down to that conversation about culture eat strategy for breakfast in that well-known phrase and I'm like okay that's interesting culture is a significant differentiator and a significant source of advantage but honestly if you have a culture and you don't have a strategy you kind of just have a nice place to hang out before you go bankrupt right if you have a strategy that doesn't have a culture to support it it becomes transactionable and less sustainable so really you're looking for that that mix and the culture and the strategy kind of have that Mobius loop thing around feeding one into each other and reinforcing each other like that. Now, sometimes what happens with coaching is it gets like, okay, that's not about getting stuff done, that's just about making people feel good. And for me, I'm like, actually, it's the bridge. Because yeah. actually, when you ask a question like, what's the real challenge here for you? That is both about getting the thing sorted out but it's also about providing growth and learning because it's not about what's the challenge and fix it. It's like, what's the challenge here for you? So it's like, how does your learning and your growth help you fix the problem that's being solved here? It's almost, a, it's almost about changing the metaphor, isn't it? Be right. Because 
if you have a very functional view of the human being, right. that this human being has been trained to do something and it's very hard to reskill them to do something else, then you take a mechanistic view about break, fixing the broken machine. Right. Yeah. But if you see the human as a very sophisticated, um, you know, learning yeah. supercomputer. Neuroplasticity, right. all that sort of stuff. It's like, uh, you know, you may be an oldish dog, there are new tricks available to you. Yeah, yeah. and you, can't, you couldn't even build a, a kind of a computing stack to rival the processing power of just one person. Right. Uh, then you're, you know, your approach to kind of debugging that, right. that, that, that computation stack probably looks more like coaching than, than it does, right. you know, now, reprogramming. I, I mean, I'm kind of so tempted to kind of turn this interview around to talk, ask you about this because I'm like, okay, so I think that's all true. And there's a bunch of tasks that happen in lots of organizations that are pretty mechanical. And there are some of those that are actually people like doing because they're like, you know what, I'm kind of wired to like steady, repetitive, get stuff done, make it make it nice yeah. kind of work. You can get into a flow state licking envelopes. You totally can. I mean, we, <laughs> you know, we, we put together training materials for our courses and so we have Rick and Carrie on our team who, who put together the folders and they both love the experience of stuffing the folders because they're like, honestly, I'm in a flow state. I'm like, I'm chilling out, I'm listening to my music, it's all, it's all good. But as organizations become more algorithmic, the more and more of those tasks are going to vanish. Absolutely. So there's going to be a smaller amount of important work that can be done. It's a higher level work. It's exciting because of that. But I am curious to know, you know, this now gets into, so what is the future of work? I mean, is it? Well, I mean, this is why I was really interested in your work and questions because, you know, I've been speaking lately to a lot of leaders in, in, in sectors that are changing very quickly because of algorithms and automation, like logistics, manufacturing right and more and more of their subsystems are being automated but right. the most useful people they have on their team are the people who've got the ability to see the gaps between the systems right to ask smart questions about what may be breaking or right. how it impacts the customer experience or right. how it impacts the people being managed by an algorithm isn't great no as uber drivers are discovering you know that's interesting you know because one of the I mean, one of the terms that gets bandied around in, in, in our world, my world certainly, is this whole idea of emotional intelligence. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, so what is emotional intelligence? There's a kind of a billion different definitions. The way I think of emotional intelligence is when you can kind of step out and see yourself operating and go, I'm seeing the effect that's having. Is that the effect I want or do I want to change something about that? Right. And I use that just as a metaphor for how you're describing that most valuable person who goes, I can be part of the process, but also step out of the process and hold a bigger perspective and ask the questions about the process that allow me to then influence the process rather than being, I'm just one small part of a, an algorithmic process and I hope I, I hope I don't break down. Oh, those good old days where we could just stuff envelopes. <laughs> Michael, it's been wonderful talking to you. I think we've, we've done ourselves proud by giving people more questions than answers. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Um, it was good to meet you, and Likewise. I'm sure we're going to have many more coffees in the future. I would look forward to that. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.